Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Um, Jason and I are here today with Bex and Gabe. Um, those are not the names you know them by, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves, say their online handles. We can start by just doing mini introductions of who you are, whatever you want to share, um, and then we'll get into a conversation about um, psychology, spirituality, all things fun. So Bex, you go first. Um, I'm Bex, and most people know me on Twitter as Buddy or Embryosophy. Um, and I love when people call me any of these things. And Embryosophy, just briefly, what does that mean? I know a big, <laughs> I could get big booty, but I don't know what Embryosophy is. Try to be brief. I've been writing a, a thread to like an Embryosophy readme that I keep I'm bad at writing long threads. I write them forever and never post them. Um, oh. And so that's sort of the story of my life. Um, <laughs> so embryosophy is like, um, so I study developmental movement, which starts with conception. And um, we look at how cellularly we move through patterns that underpin what later become structures, which underpin uh, what later become psycho-emotional structures. So um, embryosophy is something like cognition starts with movement. And the earliest movements we do are, are in our tissues. It's how we make ourselves or grow ourselves. And I'm incredibly interested in how those like first principles inform everything we are and do. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, we're definitely going to be interrogating you about that. Um, okay, <laughs> Gabe, you're, you're up. Uh, hey, my name is Gabe, and I'm uh, Vivid Void on Twitter. And uh, got a, I'm the crazy cartoon-eyed tiger who shit posts about meditation and spirituality. Um, yeah, that's me. Okay, so um, let's start this conversation um, talking a little bit about our our own spiritual journeys or our journeys into spirituality um i want to let one of you guys go first or maybe let's let jason go because he's talked about this before and he probably can easily come up with a, a quick arc um and then we'll you, you guys can go and then i'll go um and we i find it useful to to start by talking about narrative because it's it's helpful for people i think to to think not just about like the principles of spirituality but how do people actually actually come to it in their lives um so let jason you go you start us off and then let these guys go um well quick arc i was raised in two different religions um one uh, around the native american church um the other the baha'i faith um, they've both been a big part of my life at various points. Uh, I was a very serious Baha'i for my 20s, like the point where I was like knocking on doors, telling people about the good news. Um, you know, I, I, I was a believer. Uh, at some point, I, I, I kind of uh, fell out of that, uh, became kind of disenchanted, became very skeptical, was influenced by new, new atheists and all those bozos. Um, uh became just kind of you know uh whatever and at a certain point i started getting back interested in consciousness consciousness is one of those things that just never seems to go away 
Uh, it never seems to explain itself materially. Uh, so I became very interested in consciousness, um, back interested in things like psychedelics, um, meditation, um, really interested in pragmatic dharma, uh, was, was doing a lot of meditation for a while. I kind of developed my own system, which I've, I've written about, uh, kind of a mixture of self-inquiry and, and, and vipassana. Um, got more and more interested in the embodiment aspects, embodied cognition, uh, fit well with um, an activist philosophy, which I was, I was, I was, I'm still fascinated by. I think it's, it's very explanatory. And, and then that kind of led me to now more of a situated cognition and, and ecological kind of spirituality, you know, and, and part of being on a homestead is, is about interacting, you know, um, with the landscape, being part of the landscape, being, being of the landscape. Um, and so it's kind of, it's like, a you know, it's, it, you know, it, it fits well with kind of a, a non-dual sensibility, but a very active one, you know, one that's always changing, goes through cycles. There's always something transcendent lingering in the background, but it's always, you know, it's always transforming. It's always growing. It's always dying. Um, so that's where I'm now. Cool. Uh, who, which one of you guys want to go next? Don't be shy. Come on. Bex, you go. You go. Okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I was raised uh, Christian, and my parents are very devout, but are um, uh, Episcopalian. So there's a certain kind of, I think, questioning or... There's still a kind of intellectuality to that denomination that I uh, that feels close to home, even though I do don't I identify as uh, Christian anymore. And um, but I can really I'm I'm in a place where I'm really like reintegrating that as after you know rejecting it and questioning it, rejecting it, and then thinking I was done rejecting it, but going through layers of that, I feel like I'm now really in a place where I'm getting to integrate it. And some of that is being on Twitter and seeing other people re-engage with that faith. But, but it still feels important as part of my origin story that I was raised in a household that was very Christian, but also very scientific. My dad is still alive, but what it retired. So was a chemist. And so I can all, I can see how, and he, he saw no quarrel between science and religion. It's very sweet how now um, in my work, when I talk to them, to him, especially, um, I can um, see how, how integrated he is and how science and, and spirituality merge for him. And that's really true about me. It's maybe it's because Father Day, Father's Day is coming up this weekend. I'm like really tripping on that right now. So I was raised uh, in that environment and was also a dancer from a young age. Like I call it the suburban canon, but I did like the tap jazz ballet and eventually like point lyrical hip hop thing that a lot of kids kind of raised in suburbia who dance do. And so that was so important to me. I know now, now I have language for it to say like, I'm a kinesthetic learner. Like I think kids now would maybe call it neurodivergent and things like that. But I, I can look back and see how I have always learned through movement um, and, and that 
like not just enhances my ability to learn. I don't know how to learn if I'm not moving, mm. which sometimes makes book learning hard. Um, and so, so all of those pieces led me to start doing yoga in high school. I think at first I was drawn to it in a really kind of esoteric way. I liked the subtle anatomy. I thought the chakras were beautiful. I thought it seemed esoteric and cool. I was also into magic and um, was never really a Crowleyan, but, but through sort of uh, the way like the occult and sort of yoga and theosophy intertwined, that also sort of reinforced me being into yoga. And so I, um, so all of those were part of my life in a way that felt disintegrated until I had my first psychedelic experience in college. And that somehow in that moment helped me understand how it all like worked together as sort of uh, all of the things that uh, influence who I am. And I started doing yoga more after college. And when I really committed regularly, this is a thing I think I've tweeted about and I might've talked about it elsewhere, but I had this kind of what I consider kind of an awakening experience, or I like to call it like an expansion experience, but where I suddenly, like it really felt like the, the breath work in class and moving intentionally and, and, and learning to pay attention in a new way. I was, I lived in New York at the time and I was walking by the like the black cube at Astor Place I like to call the hypercube and it's where all the disaffected youth kind of hang out where if I had grown up there, I would have wanted to be like a kind of like grumpy mall goth hanging out at the cube. But anyway, I was like walking by the cube and suddenly I felt like I got like bigger. Um, and in that moment I had this realization that Though I, I started talking about the, the wonderful things about how I was raised, I was also raised with like I, really rigid ideas about who one is and who one can be in a very kind of normy way. And I suddenly was like, I can be anything I want. I can change. I'm plastic. I'm like, I'm uh, neuroplastic. I had like all in a moment, I felt how mutable I was. And, and like some would say, depending on the, tradition you're coming from how empty I was and I felt full of possibility in that moment and then since have pursued yoga and meditation and somatics and we'll loop around to that again in a minute cool Gabe you're up okay um I I grew up in uh in a religious community actually that was uh it's called people of praise uh, it's a community of charismatic Catholics, uh, the same one that the Supreme Court Justice Amy Barrett Coney comes from, or Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. I don't know her. She's a little older than me, but um, uh, that's that's where I grew up. I was Catholic till I was 20, and then I spent some, uh, and I, I had a crisis of faith around that time, and uh, so spent some time with the new atheists, uh, as uh, same as Jason. Um, and, but, uh, I, you know, I shortly thereafter joined another cult-like organization with the Marines. I, I sincerely, I was in that for seven years and it really is a warrior cult in many ways. Uh, and it, it provided a lot of the same environment for me. Um, and then when I got out of that, um, I really was very lost and, and needed some help. I went and, so I went and saw a therapist and, uh, discovered a, a developmental trauma that 
um, was really holding me back and making me miserable in a lot of ways. And I spent about two years working through that and, and um, did a lot of Zen meditation, uh, a lot of, a lot of confession, a lot of disclosure um, and uh, a lot of exposure therapy. And in the course of that, I was able to, to heal that trauma and patch myself up and, um, and, you know, I think I took about six months off and I, I loved my, I loved my therapist. I thought he was great. I was telling you guys before the show started, he was this six foot four wore a utility kilt to therapy. He was like a ranger at burning man. He was just a, uh, just a super interesting individual. Uh, and about six months after I'd uh, sort of officially you know, healed my diagnosis, I went back and I was like, there's, there's a lot more that I want to work on, but it's in the realm of, of meditation. It's in the realm of like, I, like I want to seek enlightenment. And he was like, well, if you want to, if you want to keep coming back, then we can look together if you want. And I was like, cool. So we spent like four years in an, in a kind of informal doing informal psychoanalysis that was informed by cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so I, we would do like open free association and then sort of, he would help me relate those to behavioral loops in my life and the ways that like that behavior created cognition and the ways that cognition created behavior. And, and I had this extraordinary experience while paying extremely close attention to this process that, um, that I, you know, I, I was that which, uh, programmed the behavior programmed the loops uh and that you could program loops that that weren't true to you and you could program loops that were exceedingly true to you and so i and so I, I you know made the joke again uh i'm the only person i know who had a spiritual awakening via skinner style behaviorism um but i really did and um uh, i i did not i did not achieve enlightenment uh through my work with with him, uh, but I uh, I got to a point where I was ready to take over and uh, and do the rest of the work on my own. Like I realized, like ah, like this is the journey I'm ready to go. And that was January 2020. Um, and I I think that I think probably the last piece that's really salient um, to my spiritual journey was the pandemic happening. And the pandemic really, um, really burned away everything in my life that wasn't meaningful, that wasn't really meaningful, and that wasn't built to last in as much as anything does. Um, and, it, and it included some extraordinarily painful losses and, uh, and also in some ways saved me from, from some kind of awful fates. But more than anything, it... it uh, despite the costs, it, it opened up the space for me to leave many old ways of being behind um, and to decide uh, to finally just full-time be the, the person, uh, just full-time live in, in the truth as I understand it. Um, and I, I'm sorry it had to come at such a terrible cost, but maybe it always does. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was right around that time I got on Twitter and I, I found all, all you guys. So. so. <laughs> It is weird that Twitter has become this like meeting place too, and like actual pl place in people's journey in their lives. But it is, it is like really cool to find, you know, these fellow weirdos. So um, <clears throat> my journey is I was sorry, gonna say, go something. I was like, you gotta go. No, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Um, okay. So I, um, 
have never talked about religion or spirituality in any depth here or anywhere publicly, I don't think. Um, but um, I grew up in, in a Lutheran church um, in a primarily Catholic neighborhood in Chicago. Um, and then I went to Catholic, an all-girls Catholic high school, um, which I loved, actually. We wore uniforms. It was like a giant school. Um, and we had these spiritual retreats every year. Um, and they got like increasing intensity over the course of the four years. So like the first one was, you know, like we just had a during the school day get together and we, we did things like, um, okay, there's 50 people at the retreat, um, 10 of them stand up and the other 40 close their eyes um, and put their heads down. And the 10 of them um, are instructed, if you think somebody in this room is funny, tap them on the shoulder and you would like get a certain number of taps and you're like oh people think I'm funny um that kind of thing like where you're just like oh this is so nice for younger for like 14 year olds to feel like how, how people think about them whatever um and then senior year so they were like increasing intensity like that um and then senior year there was this retreat called Kairos which was built on this Jesuit um practice I guess I have never even researched it like you know, it's just like one of those things you learn about as a teenager and just kind of go along with it. And I never really like looked into the history of it, why they did it this way. But the, the retreat was a weekend long retreat. Um, you were not allowed to know what it was and nobody would tell you, which was an insane feat for like teenage girls to not tell you um, what something was. And so nobody knew you, it was completely secretive going in. Um, and when you got there, it was set up. It was like maybe a hundred girls went each time. Um, and it was set up and you got assigned to a small group and they would speak, there was small group leaders who were previous, well, other girls in, your, in the class um, who were elected by previous small group leaders. And they would, would talk on topics like um, family, on love, on like forgiveness. And they would tell their stories in front of the group of a hundred people um, they would say like, I had to learn to forgive my dad for being an alcoholic or something like that. And there was this idea of like, whatever you're talking about there is completely secret, never leaves the, the, the place. Um, and then you would go into small group and, and in the smaller group would reflect on this theme of like forgiveness. You know, what have, what have you had, who have you had to forgive? And then you journal about it. Um, and then at the end of the retreat, I'm getting chills just talking about this. At the end of the retreat, um, you got a package of letters from everyone in your family and everyone who you've ever known, like all of your friends and, and your, and your family knows to do this. Like it's a secret in the community, but you don't know that you're going to get it. And then you get it. And they're just like, you know, you're 17 or 18 years old. And it's like, we're so proud of you. This is who you've become. Like, <laughs> like start crying. It's so, it's so beautiful. Um, and then when you get back, you also don't know it's like Sunday night, you know, there's school the next day. Um, all of your friends and family come, and everybody's friends and family come to the gym and you get received back into the community. Um, and everyone who was there um, has to um, stand up in front of the mic and like, I think say like something they learned or something like that. And you, you keep it vague. Um, and then like, you know, you go sit with your family or whatever um, and like embrace them for the first time after this experience. That was super formative for me. Like, I mean, just thinking about how you can use psychology and communication to just like build relationships and community. 
and friendships, um, how there's like an importance of ritual, rituals and rituals that people are bought into and like all participating in. Um, and so I was, that wasn't to me like it necessarily had to be Catholic or anything. And I hadn't, hadn't ever heard of that like happening in any other Catholic place besides our little neighborhood where all the, all the Catholic high schools did that. Um, but then, so then I, you know, I kind of was just like loosely atheist, went to college where it was like cool to be not religious at all. Um, you know, it was just understood that if you're intelligent, you are not religious, you know, that's like the kind of attitude that they, that they took, which I think is kind of harmful in general, because like, there's no real talk of spirituality either. It's just like, there's just no religion or spirituality to, to discuss. It's all intellectual stuff. Um, and then after college, I just started, um, I, I took psychedelics a couple times and that really helped me to, at the same time as learning about like I had a real interest in paleolithic consciousness <laughs> and just like, you know, taking psychedelics and like learning about paleolithic consciousness. I was just like, I mean, I think our probably natural state for spirituality is some kind of, you know, base animism. where just like, everything is, everything is um, filled with magic, you know, just like a total sense of like the world is just magical. Um, and so then, I, you know, I've learned, then I've, read about all various religions and for me like my understanding is that like at its base a lot of religions especially the mystical side of them is really just like trying to get your consciousness to that magic that sense of like everything is imbued with meaning um so so i just yeah i think basically like my my very loose and relaxed spiritual practices that revolve around trying to get that presence you know the be here now you know just magic of daily life and i think it's just like in a buddhist sense just very um transitory like you get it for a second you get it for like a minute you get it like in a flow state and then it goes away um and that's just our burden to bear as humans <laughs> um i don't know so then anyways that's my my little story that's where i'm at now and um the, what I'm reminded of with all of us talking is like the kind of mix of so many different influences, but we've all kind of come to a similar sense of like embodiedness matters and like this cognition to behavior cycle. So I don't know if people have, I, I don't know. I just want to explore that more. I'm like, hear thoughts about that. For me, it really came when I had this um, issue. I mean, I still do to some degree where my mind kind of fixates on irrelevant things. Well, well, seemingly irrelevant things. Um, and I, I kind of get stuck in these mental loops. Um, and one thing I noticed is that even when that was happening, I could be doing something. I noticed that there was still some kind of awareness of like what was that, what was like, I felt confused, but there was some kind of awareness of what was real. And it was just always kind of self-sustaining. Um, and I got really fascinated by this idea of, of just kind of knowing without thinking, right? Knowing outside of the formal deductive, you know, thinking process. Um, and I was like, what is that, right? Like, like where does that come from? And at some point I, I 
got got a sense or I read about it or something that you know it's related to the body. It's related to um, you know your your body kind of like like just driving down the street. I do these experiments like just driving down the street and like I'm not thinking about it and I just observe my body you know turning when it needs to turn and it's like who's doing that right? Where is who is the self that's doing that? Right. And that, that, that became fascinating. And so, you know, I was also really interested in this, this Buddhist idea of no self. And it was like, but even when the self seems to, you know, uh, disappear for a while, there's still knowing, a self-standing knowing. Um, uh, as Robert Reyes says, there is knowing. It's just, it's just there. And, and, and that, I think, really led me into kind of like, you know, there's something about our body, this embodied cognition that just knows. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, and that, you know, when I when I kind of had that insight, like, it was just like, wow, this is a whole world, right, of like, tap, being able to tap into this kind of self-sustaining knowing outside of this, you know, rationalist thinking process. Um, and so I think, you know, the rest is history from there for me. Anything come up for you guys, Bex or Gabe? A lot. I'm trying to <laughs> trying to kind of narrow it down, but um, I I want to say I that what you say, Jason, is really resonant. Actually, before I say that, I want to say, wow, like Ashley, the experience you had as a teenager in did you say it was called Kairos? Kairos, Kairos, yeah, which which is like incredible. yeah, God's time, and there's like Kronos is like human time, and then Kairos. Okay, is okay, right, gotcha. No, it sounds fucking incredible. And I just think in some kind of way, like how different would everything be if whatever the context, if like young people could have those kinds of experiences together and in learning together and sharing and being vulnerable. Um, but, but what I was going to say to what you said, Jason, is um, yeah, I agree. And I experienced myself, I think, similarly. And that's some of what I'm getting at when I'm talking about like, like the cellular awareness that mm. underpins whatever we are now, which is still cellular awareness. And I mean, it's a great mystery to me that there's a part of me that thinks I'm me and like it can talk to you all and use language and that the rest of me is in constant, like in embedded communication all the time that, that I don't, that I can't manage. It would be worse if I did try to manage it. It's, it is sort of like self managing and emergent in every moment. And, um, and I think, or at least the language I have for it now, and one could get more granular. I'm like trying to ignore, I'm gonna say, I'm just gonna say I ignore things like, not totally, but I ignore quantum physics for instance, cause that's almost like two, like another like fractal scale levels. I don't know if I can even quite go there yet, but I would say cellularly, I think of ourselves as our first sense organs and our, our first senses of self is the sort of like the unit of the cell. And um, I think that is still under everything. Gabe, anything for you? Uh, a little bit. I uh, something that's been that's been very interesting to me. So Bex brought up uh, 
uh, rationality or maybe uh, rationalism or whatever that might be, which is the way I, I found my way to you all was through the, the post-rationalists, which is this you know, tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, and the rationalists being a, um, a kind of subgroup in of mostly tech people in San Francisco who uh, sort of have a, are, are, are doing their best to uh, uh, learn to think in a way without bias or without scientific error. Um, and I actually, I actually think they've, they've got a fascinating project. I think it's sort of, um, you know, uh, teeters over into intellectualization like on a regular basis, uh, sort of as a defense against like anxiety. Um, but I'm really interested in it because there's something um, really emblematic of the pole of the mind um, a, a, that you can really clearly put into dialectic with the pole of the body. And I'm really interested in this because I, I find uh, that very often most of the people I know, and this includes some of the most aware and alive spiritual practitioners that I know, uh, oscillate back and forth um, just too wildly. Either it's all body and it's no mind and it's, you know, everything is somatic, everything is embodied and the mind doesn't matter and blah, blah, blah. Or there, or somebody's like hyper rational, and they're like, you know, everything needs to be, you know, right angles, and we're going to get everything perfectly without bias. It's going to be the truth as we know it objectively. And 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 I mean, to me, it's like, what's what's a lot more interesting of a question than like which one is right? Is like, what are these two? How do these two relate to one another? And like, what in what way is like when? when these two talk to one another and the tension between these two poles, like what happens there? Wasn't, um, wasn't it you who just posted a picture where it was like, I'm in the comfy zone. Was that you? Yeah. Yeah. What was, were the two yeah, poles every, every, that one? The poll on one side was everything is enchanted and approaching insanity. And then the other side was, uh, 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 it was not nothing is yeah, or yeah, nothing is magical and it's approaching depression. So it's like too much acceptance on one side, too much enchantment on the other side. Yeah. And I'm always looking for, for the dialectic because, because I think there are, I think there are, there are errors that being overly somatized can lead you into. And there are errors that being like overly, uh, you know, mind focused and overly cognition focused can, can lead you into if either one is is leading you away from a, like a harmonious relationship between the two of them, yeah. um, you know you're gonna you're gonna it's you're gonna struggle. Like the state of integrity is is how is how the truth of of who you are, whatever that whatever that may be, you know it emerges more and more. And so I'm I'm always looking for how that integrity is changing shape and and uh, and and co-constructing and co-developing. I love that so much. Um, something that's coming up for me is I love this comfy zone thing. I love a comfy zone. I just love that phrase. And I love that um, this is okay. So there's multiple polls coming up here. There's um, like free will and determinism. Like, are we our bodies? Are we ourselves? Or are we something, some kind of consciousness? Do we have control over things or don't we like Jason with the driving? This is a common one, this, this conversation about the driving um, where you're like, how did my body know how to do this? I wasn't paying attention. Now I'm, I reached my destination. Um, doomer optimism. You don't want to be too doomer. You don't want to be too optimism, like living in that. Um, 
I don't know. I'm, it's just a prompt. Like these polls, it's so hard because it's, I think it's really comfortable for a lot of people to go to a poll or they think if they go to one of the polls that like they'll be able to control everything and like, all right, I'm just gonna go all the way doom. I'm gonna buy into doom. I'm gonna go hardcore accelerationist. Like that'll solve all the problems. And then it doesn't because more complicated things come up. So like every time it's like the false promise of one of the polls, you got to stay in the comfy zone, but it's hard. It's like hard work to stay in the comfy zone. And it's like requires a great deal of nuance. I like the comfy zone is really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but I'm the most comfortable with that. Like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm suspicious of anything that's too comfortable and maybe of anything that's too uncomfortable. I don't know, but it <laughs> <laughs> makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I definitely like, uh, see that see that in each of you and I know myself to be a person who really kind of likes to surf in the like I'm often trying to swing the pendulum towards body um, because I still feel like that's not I see people maybe writing it off or disengaging it it's also kind of my life's work as a like somaticist but I also always want to be clear to people and like and actually Gabe and I were talking the other day and you said like one of the most complimentary things that anyone has ever said to me, I think you've maybe called me post synthesis or something, meaning like in dialectics. Post dialectic. Post dialectic is what you said. I, I made it into like post synthesis, but, but I love that. And I want to keep figuring out what that even means. And yeah, for me, there's really something in it about, like I'm in a project of trying to redefine co cognition and this might be like ecological cognition or ecolo like situated cognition, but really being like, it's not it body and mind or like, like our and spirit or mind or whatever, like this is where words break down are so infinitely braided that they're not separable. And like, what is it to live in all, all of both or all like, what does that look like? One practice that I really like, I call it like bottom up and, and, and top down exploration of body mind is so like bottom up is, you know, I, I pay attention to bodily sensations like a body scan. And then I notice, you know, you know, certain whatever knots or tensions in the body. Uh, and then I, I try and notice what thoughts arise when I put my attention on that. Right. And and then the top down form is, you know, I'm. I'm thinking about something and then I, I, I try and notice what, what, what part of my body is that, you know, correlated with, or is that related to, right? And so just kind of this iteration going back and forth. I mean, one for me, it, it tells me that it, it, it it's continuous, right? I, I don't, I don't think body and mind are discrete entities um, and braided. I, I really like that, that term braided. I, that, that seems to make a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, one way to put it, you know, to sell, say, a rationalist is that doing body work, the somatics can actually help you think a lot better um, because, you know, I, I see our thoughts as highly related to kind of the energy structure in our body, right? And if there's some kind of constriction, it, it actually constricts where our thoughts can go, right? Because if something is like traumatizing, our thoughts are not going to go there. They're going to stay away. And so we're actually on a, like a local, um, you know, like a local uh, maximum. Like if you look at that, like that, 
you know, the evolutionary like graph or whatever, you're like on a local optimum, right? And you're actually closed off from exploring, you know, greater potentials of your mind by doing this body work, opening up these channels that allow your thinking process to take new shapes to be more creative. Um, Yeah, I think that's wonderful. There's, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Yeah, there's, there's, it, what it reminds me of is, um, is there's, there's sort of, you, you see a lot sort of in, in our crew, like, uh, uh, there's a lot of sort of, um, uh, there's a lot of people who are really into self-improvement mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people who are really skeptical of self-improvement. Like, how could you possibly do that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I think a lot of times I think there's, there's, um, in the same way that it's sort of, you can really help someone who sort of over, um, intellectualizes by, by, uh, incentivizing them. Like you can intellectualize even better if you get in touch with your body and it's because it's true and it's just <laughs> going to help them holistically. You know, you're not lying to them in any way. Right. But it's like leading someone toward balance will actually make them better at the thing that they're overly optimized for. Um, and, and in a strange way, it's the same thing with like, it's like, I have friends who are like, you know, like self-improvement, like, come on, like, that's not possible. Like all of it is waste. It's all like they're Augustinian. It's all straw, like whatever. And it's like, no, like, like if you, if you get people to self-improve until they hit, until they hit the point, right? Like, like you had like self-improvement, you can't skip it. You know, you can't, you can't like jump around this part of the phase where you get to a point where you go like, uh, like, oh, like I've really discovered enough about myself now that I no longer need to do that. Like, you can't just skip it and be like, ah, to hell with it. I know everything I need to know about myself. And what, you know, like you're still going to be stuck in all the things that you needed to shed by, by putting all that effort in, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I think the balancing, I think sometimes, sometimes you have to like, what looks like you need to step on the brake is you actually need to hit the gas. Yeah, um, one thing that's coming up for me is um, I have a little bit of a, I don't know, like a, I struggle with self-improvement being on the, on the spectrum of narcissistic insofar as like you're looking into yourself, you know, you're spending so much time. There's like, if you go too far in that direction, it turns into this like self-care fetishization thing. And, um, and then a couple of times I've done psychedelics and I've like, when I've had since becoming a mother and I've like had my kids go with a grandparent, which is good for them. It's good for me to have my time. It's good for me to like explore my spiritual practice, but then like I'm on psychedelics and um, trying to learn, like gain some sort of insight and, uh, um, and then I just think like at the end, like, I just want to get back to my kids. Like, I want to get back into the responsibility of like interdependence and like my role in that. And then thinking back to this Kairos experience, I think like a lot of my thoughts about spirituality are about community and interdependence. Like self-care should be ideally co-created. Like it got co-created in that experience. It was, it wasn't just me journaling by myself it was because it was shared that it was so powerful so I don't know like if you guys have thoughts about that I mean for me on the one hand I do think self-care is important or at least has been important culturally for people to recognize 
but I, I would say an atomized culture would call it self-care. Yeah. Um, there, there's also something like really real in, um, in, a, in my experience in like psychology and therapy, but, and in my experience in somatics, and those are like not separate about learning to take care of ourselves so we can take care of the community it, in a way where that's not separate. I do think the self-care piece and that of course, like an industry built, built around it is pretty fappy and like annoying, <laughs> frankly, even if I do think that at its fundament, something it's recognizing something important. And I agree with you that like self-care in and of itself, I mean, sometimes maybe we do need to, I don't know, like just take a fragrant bath. I don't know when, so the word self-care conjures up a lot of kind of silly, um, <laughs> I know silly I images that would make it something yeah. yeah that I would get would try to get like sold to me on Instagram and I'd be like uh like so but I really think at its heart whatever self-care is getting at is yeah us taking care Thank of you. ourselves so we can be better for others and that those things are like not separate and it sometimes means learning about ourselves so that we can be in community better because we know ourselves better yeah yeah yeah, that resonates with me. I'm, I think like it's just an inherent skepticism too. And I think there's probably, I'm blaming the self-care when what's actually happening is we're in such an atomized society that like to stem the, stem the, the bleed, stop the bleeding. We just like, I, I just got to figure this out. Like if I have to go to professional, whatever it takes, like, uh, of course, ideally we're we're in a community where we're always doing self-care all the time and we're all taking care of each other. And we're like all aware that somebody needs something and we're supportive of that, but not everybody has, most people don't have something like that. So it's like a solution to a larger social problem. Um, not something to critique on its own, I think. Well, I think it's important um, to critique it. I, I, it, it's a, I, I think it's important to critique it. You, you know, it's such, it's become such a, um, such a visible cultural concept that to not critique it is um, is a greater sin, I think. So I, so keep it up. I think that's important. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. and then the other thing yeah. that comes up a lot in Doomer Optimism, well, I think about this a lot. Okay, so in Doomer Optimism, a lot of times we talk about like, okay, so um, start by just like getting things right with yourself to the extent you can, like fortifying yourself, making yourself stronger, more psychologically healthy, um, physically healthy, whatever. And it's like the Jordan Peterson clean your room thing. Like I, we've talked to people who have literally said like um, they listen to Jordan Peterson clean your room, uh, you know, type videos. And then reading the comments where people are saying like, you know, I just needed somebody to say this to me. And then just like crying, you know, I just needed somebody to say this to me, like, um, which is huge. Like, I don't want to discount that. That's such a huge step. You have to just like get to a point where like, I just, I think I just need to be told I have agency. And then you can start moving in a direction towards something more positive. But then we always try to encourage like, okay, beyond the individual, you know, now what are you doing with it? You know, are you, are you, are you improving your relationships? Like, are you doing anything to your community? Are you making any relationship to the land? Like, you know, what are you, are you changing your vocation? Like, um, ideally the spheres increase, you know, they continue to increase out. And I think I'm a little skeptical of, of like, I think somebody who, who maybe, although this is like a heuristic in, in history too, but like somebody whose whole life is just only like enlightenment, you know, like just, the, and, has, and that's like a monk, you know, and that's fine. I guess there, there's a heuristic for that, but um, 
it seems to me like we have a responsibility like beyond this self, you know, to, to share the insights into some sort of interdependent whole. Yeah, I mean, I think so. But I even reinterpret things like the Bodhisattva vow from Buddhism as being like, not like I'm enlightened, but I'm not going to be enlightened so everyone else can be because I have to help them. I think that's a misinterpretation and something more like I literally cannot be enlightened if everyone else isn't. And, and all the ways I could also restate that because we can't do it alone because we're not alone. So I, so I do think it's that, yeah, that sometimes those are just kind of misinterpretations in a really atomized world that I think is, I think we're all in this conversation is evidence of the way there's like a really beautiful kind of relearning or remembering of things that have been forgotten. There's a great um, Kenneth Volk quote, something like, if you were perfectly self-interested and enlightened, you would love everybody because you would see them not other than yourself. Mm. I think that it's almost kind of, you know, we're in a starting from in a modern society where we're all atomized and we need to go through this particular pathway where you need to almost find you know, your, your love for people and the land, you know, through yourself, you know, like through some kind of awakening within yourself that then, you know, can't, you know, the ego can't attend its own funeral, right? Um, so it, it, it suddenly, the idea, the ideal is that it's then suddenly, oh, this person is not fundamentally different from me, right? We're different expressions of, you know, universe, or whatever, but they're not fundamentally different. And so how can I improve this relationship, right? To express that, you know, wholeness or, you know, with our ecology, with the land, right? It, it, it's, it seems like it should be a natural expression. And of course, you know, in traditional society and in indigenous cultures, they went the other way, right? Like the, the, the social cultural context was already there, right? The scaffolding was already there. And you almost started from the social, um, and then maybe somebody would go on like a hero's journey or something, you know, but it, but, but the foundation of the kind of community embeddedness and embeddedness of the land was already there. And so it's interesting that we're kind of having to reverse engineer it in, in modernity. Um, you know, I, I don't know where it will go because it's kind of fundamentally a new, a new thing. Yeah, I think that's really, I think that's really important to, to talk about is, you know, we, we talk about, you know, you know, narcissism is a culture bound pathology, right? In the West, you know, all, everybody has levels of narcissism that are at a level of pathology, close, close to it, if you're embedded in the culture. And that's true. And most of us like roll our eyes and, and put a moral judgment on that because what a bunch of assholes. And we, but we forget that we forget how extraordinarily painful narcissism is for the narcissist. Very difficult to empathize with, but it's extraordinarily painful. It's not self-love; it's self-hatred. It's it's a hatred of who you really are, and so you fixate on an image of yourself that isn't true, because that's the palliative. That's the that's the the drug you take to self-medicate for the pain of hating who who you are hating the culture that you come from, hating the land that you're a part of, hating your body, hating your mind. It's, it's a horrible disease. And it's culture bound. It's culture bound. So, so when, we, when we 
encourage people to self-care. Like, you know, obviously you don't want to sell people spa packages and monster energy drink, but people are going to do that, right? <laughs> what self-care fundamentally is about is, is about, uh, it's using the vector of self-obsession, which, which most of us are plagued with a little too much of. Um, I mean, not that human beings in a, in a, uh, healthy culture are not also self-obsessed or just a little bit more than everybody else, right? But if you use this as a vector, then what you're doing is you're teaching people uh, to heal their relationships to themselves, to their true selves. And and if you can help them be a little more kind and a little more compassionate, then that helps them be a little more honest. And then if you can be a little more honest, then maybe you can reveal a little more of who you are and you can put down a little more of the image. And that's just a slow, tortured crawl out of the false self and into the truth that sometimes requires spa packages and monster energy drinks. And it's like, you know, I don't know if it requires it, but it's going to come with it because capitalism, like that's how it is. <laughs> Some Somebody's going to figure out how to make money off of this thing. Um, uh, but I, I, I don't see another really viable path that doesn't start with that. But I, I do think there's some real wisdom in, in healing the relationship console and when I say console, I mean, like, if you're in, like, Star Trek, you know, and the people have, like, all the buttons that they, that they, oh, you know, fix the flux capacitor. Oh, no, the weeble's blowing up or whatever, right? Like, you've got this console of stuff that you can do to fly your starship. And you've got this console of buttons and actions that you, that you can use to relate to people. And the er console is the one that is the relationship to the self. It's the ego. That's what the ego is. So, so if you, if you transform the way that you that you relate to yourself, then you can't help but bring that relationship console into all of your other relationships, including like the one with the, with the land, with your body, with other people. Um, and then pretty soon that relationship console starts to get good enough. You start to realize like, like, Oh, we've all got the same console. Like, like, Oh, like, Oh, like you start to like the, the environment start to become very visible. The connections and the bonds start to become very thick and they start to become very palpable. And so anyway, I, I, I think it's the right, I think it's the right vector. It's much maligned, you know, because when it goes the wrong way and when it traps people from developing and from growing, then it's, then of course it's not a good thing. Um, but it's, uh, I do think, I, I do think it's the best path we've got that I know of right now. Uh, for as far as like a mass, a mass idea or a meme that could help lots of people. I love that. Jason, were you going to say something? Well, I was, I was thinking, you know, so we've had conversations, um, you know, so like there's kind of a distinction people make between spirituality and religion and, and religion, you know, tends to be more kind of the social, you know, instantiation, you know, community of like, you know, the body of Christ or, you know, like, like it's, it's in the world. Um, and, you know, people, it seems like there's been an interesting trend, like, like we talked about, you know, the new atheism, you know, and, and that's pretty much fizzled out. And, and now it seems like people are kind of taking two different tracks, right? They're, they're, they're moving towards this like new synthesis of personal spiritual exploration. And then people are getting together in communities, you know, you have new religious, you know, kind of institutions that are, that are arising. Um, uh, and then you have people kind of going, going back you know, going trad, right? Like, like going back to, tradi to, to tradition, right? Like we, we just interviewed a guy who, you know, grew up atheist and then he recently converted back to, you know, Catholicism uh, or he converted to Catholicism. 
Um, and, and there's definitely, I think in the doomer optimism space that we kind of have to see, see a bit of both, right? We see, you know, there's a lot of like traditional Christians who, who were always that way or returned um, or, or decided. And then there's, there's the kind of the, the weirdos, um, you know, I, I would place myself in, in the weirdo camp of like, you know, for, you know, I, I've done kind of, you know, I've done the religious thing, you know, I felt it, um, you know, un, constraining in, in unnecessary ways. And, um, you know, I need something else, but personal spirituality, uh, or even doing it with cool friends will only take you so far. Like, like what, what about the religion of, of the future is the religion of the future re, you know, re-inhabiting, um, religious traditions that have been around and and you know submitting ourselves to them or or evolving them from the inside or is it developing something new I'm curious how, how you see that landscape i mean i can i think both could work i think it's good to have lots of options because people are so different and need kind of different things i I have always been such a non-joiner that it feels more like my way to, um, <clears throat> I mean, are we ever, ever creating something new? Maybe yes, maybe no. that's like a whole other thing I think we could talk about, but I feel like maybe, maybe I don't want to say creating something new. I feel like I have always needed to like discover things for myself to learn them. I, I don't know why, but I've always felt like a very skeptical person in a way that feels really intrinsic to my nature, but um, who knows, maybe it was some of how I was nurtured too, but um, where for me, um, the, the, and, and then like what's traditional, right? Like I don't use the word pagan a lot, or I sometimes say I'm like a lowercase pagan, partly because I don't follow, there are kind of more centralized is the wrong word, but um, there's sort of a pagan canon that rests on sort of uh, a fake history. And that's fine. I think creating history can be important, but I'm not really a part of that paganism. I'm more, but, but is that traditional? That feels more traditional to me in some ways than like, the Christian upbringing I had. So the word traditional or trad gets used in a lot of different ways. For me, and I'm a like back to the land person, there's something deeply spiritual about that um, and about being part of a community that is bigger than me and bigger than humanity. And it's also like really a privilege to get to go back to the land and like own land, which is a whole other conversation. Like, what does it even mean to own land? It means the land owns me and, and teaches me about myself in the greater Sangha, like in the greater beyond human community. And I also felt when I lived in New York city, there was still, a, I called it city magic, but there was still like a, an emergent concert of, all being together too that I don't I'm in a kind of tensionist place in me where I I'm coming like back to nature because I really missed that when I lived in a city I'm coming back to nature to rediscover that and it's letting me see all of the like worshipful cycles I was involved in in a city too and um where I also want there to be space for that because 
not everyone can leave the city and go to the land to discover like the cycles in which they're enmeshed and the the kind of mahasanga, the like great community, the like nested communities that they're a part of. I feel like my thought isn't complete. I want to hear from some no, of you, so but cool. I might have I more to say. <laughs> Gabe, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, I don't think so. Um, I, well, maybe. Maybe. So uh, um, uh, uh, probably one of the people I'm closest to on Twitter, aside from, from Booty and you all here, is Tal Umat, who has you know, um, my other mystical dad Twitter uh, counterpart. There's a few of them, few of us, but uh, us two are particularly tight. And, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about it's sort of in the context of like the changes that are happening in our little corner of spiritual Twitter. We sort of happened upon some ideas um, about a kind of meta modern container for faith. Um, and maybe this ties in, maybe this, so maybe this ties into what we were talking about earlier, but maybe there's kind of, there's sort of an understanding that that the body does faith and that the body does religion, like humans do it. Um, uh, and, and a lot of times the question is not which one is right, you know, but like, which one does your body do? Which one does your body, like, how does your body want to worship? How do you want to worship? And when you're quiet and everything else is out of the way, like, how do you commune with with the infinite and with paradox and with you know that those things that we that we think of as divine, um, and I I think it's perfectly acceptable for that to be Catholic or Muslim or or any of the world's religions or to be a, a super weirdo wild-eyed mystic who just does it in their own way. Um, it's, you know, I, I, if we could come up with some kind of and I, I, I'm not, I don't believe that all religions are, are true and pointing at the same thing. And, you know, like I'm, a, I'm not a naive syncretist. Um, in, some, in some ways, a really, a really good metaphor for this is sort of like religion is to spirituality as gender is to sex, um, right? Like there, there can be so many, so many different ways to express this kind of essential thing about this thing that's like so deep at the core of who we are. Um, but... Um, if if we I don't think there are very many containers out there that that provide a, a holding and developing environment for someone to really find the spirituality that's right for them. And I could be wrong. Maybe the Unitarians do this, or maybe uh, something like this already exists that I'm not aware of. But if there's if there were a community that that we thought of as as a developmental environment that encouraged spiritual exploration and growth and also and held space for periods of in, intense skepticism uh it's held in the same way that your parents held space for you to be an asshole when you were a teenager right <laughs> if we had a spiritual container that that held space for you to be an asshole when you have your new atheist phase you know like like without being like you've blasphemed and you have to get out of the community and you've, you're excommunicated and you're you know objectively wrong about this manifestation of God you know it's like not which isn't to say I'm not trying to say that 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 uh, uh, 
I'm not trying to say nothing is true and that all truth is relative. It's not that. It's it, only that um, I think something that's this very obvious is that people worship in different ways. And if there's some way uh, that we can help someone find the truest expression of their of their connection to the divine, then um, I would love to be a part of that. Hmm. I love that. Um, yeah. I, I my, The way that I've approached this question has just been like general exploration to see like what you're saying, Gabe, like what resonates with me. Um, and I do think like I need some kind of people <laughs> involved, like other people somehow, whatever, whatever capacity, like other people, whether it's like through some kind of ritual or some sort of practice. And like, I've always loved the idea that may, maybe it's not even true. Maybe I just made this up in my head, but like early Christianity involved like eating together and like um, acknowledging uh, sins as in like shitty things I've done to other people here sitting at this table. Like, I'm sorry that I like screwed up and like, you know, I'm just going to acknowledge it, clear the air. And like, I love the idea of that as like a, a ritual feels so informal but beautiful too at the same time. Like this is something that happened. Like, I just want to say it out loud. I want you all to know that I know that I did it and I, I'm sorry. And like, this is, this is confession. I love that. Um, so things like that, where there's some kind of like, just Jason and I have spoken about this privately, but like this metamodern spirituality thing where you're like pulling from these heuristics, these containers, these rituals that can take lots of different forms um but you know finding what resonates with you um i want to shift a little bit to talking about like some practical um approaches like okay so somebody's listening to this conversation they've they've not done any almost any spiritual practice or haven't thought about it deeply are considering maybe going back to religion or like exploring spirituality more where to even get started like how to even wrap your head around it. What, what would you guys say as people who help keep, help others, you know, through, through that journey? Bex, you want to go? I think, <laughs> I think such a fundamental skill uh, is one, recognizing that you're not your thoughts um, and, and, and noticing how your thought process relates to your emotions and particularly how your emotions express themselves in the body. I think I think that's pretty easy to train through like a guided meditation. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it was kind of revolutionary. Like I, I had been religious in other ways that, you know, mystical, you know, had psychedelic experiences, but I didn't have that basic skill until I was like 30. Uh, and it was like a revolutionary, you know, realization that you could do this. Uh, it just completely changed everything. Um, and, you know, I think I think just with that basic, you know, kind of ability, it, it opens up a whole re range of, of exploration and affordances that you could do. So, you know, mindfulness 101, basically. I sometimes uh, like to call mindfulness bodyfulness. So mm. there's me like swinging the pendulum. Yeah. which doesn't mean not mindfulness in <laughs> it just means i want like people to know it's maybe bigger than mind or mind is more physical than it seems or something um so 
the way what has worked practically for me and so which is it ends up being kind of what I share with folks is um I mean, it could be in a sort of a, a container, like I guess the container I'm mostly coming from formally is yoga, but I'm in kind of a hinge point in my yoga teaching where I'm like becoming a somaticist. And so my yoga really has this sort of somatic foundation, which means being more about feeling than the formalism of yoga. But again, the formalism of the container of yoga, like making shapes is still a good tool as long as we remember that it's the shapes are actually quite arbitrary um, or they, they don't have meaning outside of the person making them is what I really mean by that. Um, and so I would, I, my experience has been that uh, my, like what I call my spirituality arises in group movement, whether that's a yoga class or dancing together and it might also mean the sharing or sound making or talking or that comes from that too. And I feel like the way I tend to, I'd like to offer it in more and more diverse ways. I can kind of see that trajectory in my life. And right now it often looks like, like me developing a, an exercise for someone that would probably look like yoga or a more simple movement and breath that would be about like getting curious about um, feeling one's own body and anatomy. Um, I just have to jump in first before Gabe goes. Um, what was coming up for me, Bex, when you were talking was, um, I'm always trying to think like, how would these principles work if they were happening on a community scale? because this is where my mind always goes. And I was thinking about like, um, like a town dance, <laughs> like a town dance, you know, everybody knows what happens at it. And like, um, there are roles and like, you know, traditionally I've heard of these stories or people have talked about how there's like the old ladies who sit on the side and they're like silently judging um, <laughs> what everybody's doing, but in like a way that manages the, what people are allowed to do inside, you know, cause you know they're, that they're, they're the there. Container. The, what'd you say? They're the yoga container. The yeah. Yeah. They're the, yeah, they're the <laughs> container like within which the, the, the activity yeah. can act, like can, can express itself. Um, and like thinking about like a town dance where everybody in the town knows what movement to make. I was at a, um, a Native American dance once in Arizona with a friend who was doing field work there. And it was like, there was like this chicken scratch dance. Like people danced like they were a chicken scratching the ground in a circle. Like everybody was going around in a circle. And that was like such a cool container for like spirituality to arise out of. And then the other thing that I was thinking about was this, um, sports team that I'm on I've played sports a lot in my life and I like sports classes more than dance classes for whatever reason but I just feel like there's something in the competitive nature and then the the limitations on the rules for the sport but then like I we have a goal I'm trying to win <laughs> um so that's really fun too because you're like you're trying to reach something but then the whole time there's like at least at the, the sports I've always played there's a playfulness to it like I never really took it that seriously which made it more fun for me I think but Anyways, I was just thinking about those different examples of, you know, maybe even making music together as, as oh. something to, 
as like a and a I would say yeah as an addendum it could be making music together after dinner but it could be singing together as we work like it could be um smiling at each other as we do a maypole which we just had we do a maypole like a, a may day celebration every year so that's still kind of fresh in my mind where we do a maypole and the and like do kind of a spiral dance and 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 a few different practices which are sort of which we consider traditional um and but we're also kind of reinventing from what we know about them and there's such a like like the sweetest sort of most mischievous like winky ground of being just seems to like be like hi as you're like going around the maple together I don't know there's like something deep about life that I cannot describe any better than this that like that like come comes up and like I'm I'm like I, I'm trying to remember I actually yesterday I just listened to the episode with Rich and like trying to remember how he defined conviviality which is a word I like to use a lot but something about just like like liveliness yep totally Illichian yeah. I'm getting more and more into Illich um Gabe you, you could go sorry <laughs> I'm really I'm really glad you brought up viviality or the feeling of aliveness because that was going to be part of what I wanted to talk about but if if someone was just getting started uh, on on a spiritual journey, I I have the I've been doing life coaching and I have the privilege of seeing the outset of people's uh, spiritual journeys. A lot of times they're dipping their toe in by talking to a life coach because that seems like the most sort of respectable thing. You don't want to just go straight to hippie like zero to like hippie. You know, like that's hard. Um, but um, I, I think that um, I certainly I certainly don't think you need a life coach or or a teacher or a therapist or a mentor. Um, necess- I don't think everyone needs that. I think some people really benefit from that. I would say if you have at least one person that you can talk to about spirituality and about uh, the noumenal and about sort of, you know, the unseen and what you believe and, and what you think is going on, whether that's a partner or a friend or a family member. I I do believe that this is a process that has to happen in, in dialogue because we're dialogic creatures. And so, so we, we have to develop in solitude and we have to develop in dialogue and both of those things need to happen. Um, and and it, it it will be and and um, Booty will recognize this this motion, but the fundamental motion of it is is evolutionary, and it'll be it, it's it's in embeddedness, and then it's differentiation, and then it's integration and embeddedness, and then it's differentiation, right? And this is the motion of life. This is from the minute you're attached to uh, a uterine wall and swimming in amniotic fluid until you all of a sudden you're outside taking your first breath and everything is light and pain, right? And this is your, this is the motion of life, right? Differentiation, integration. If you're going to begin a spiritual journey, uh, understand that that's going to be the motion and make sure you, you have someone uh, that you, that you can just be honest with, even about the really weird stuff that that you might experience or the really like magical things that you might believe that might sound a little crazy to somebody else 
Um, and then, and then I would say, um, carve out a little piece of time every week, um, that's quiet and, um, take some time to explore your relationships. And I don't mean necessarily to other people, but you can start there and whether it's journaling or you make art or music or something, um, a period of time that's dedicated that's just for you and that's that's quiet and away from everything else. You can really kind of leave everything at the door and then start asking questions. What is what is my relationship to my spirit? What is my relationship to my body? What is my and then that's going to bring up lots of other questions. What's my what's my relationship to my mind? What's my relationship to my food? What's my relationship to my home? What's my relationship to uh, my community and just keep looking at relationships and just keep looking at not not the what but the how how do you relate to these things what how would you characterize the way that you relate to everything in your life and 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 just see what happens just keep expressing just keep writing down and see for yourself what feels true and what what fills you with a sense of aliveness mm-hmm. I would add, what is my relationship with my, with I, me, mine, mm. this story? <laughs> They'll get there. Self-inquiry. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a natural outcropping. I think it's like you, eventually you, when you start getting really good at this stuff, all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, it's what's like- my relationship to myself? Uh-oh. And that's where the really good stuff starts happening. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, I think you. I think you just said it. Um, I guess the thing I would add. I mean, the thing that I, the second thing I found revolutionary for me was turning the light back around. Because, um, like, even in say vipassana meditation, you're like noting things or your body scanning or you know whatever whatever process you're doing. But it's still from the perspective of somebody. You're you're looking. You're noticing your body. You know and. At a certain point, you can turn the light around. And it's like, well, who is the eye that's that's noticing? And for me, that what something I found really helpful was relating this back to the body. Of like, if I do an inquiry, like, um, you know, what is aware, then I can notice the body sensations that light up from from that question, right? So it's not just kind of like what is aware, and then hopefully something mystical happens. It's more like what is aware. Oh, actually, I noticed that the sense of awareness is like behind the eyes or it's in the shoulders, right? And then you can re- kind of relate it to this more somatic process. Um, or, you know, who am I in relationship to this person, right? Like, so you can also, you know, not to get too narcissistic, it can also, you know, it, it starts to wind its way around all of your kind of identities in relationship to yourself and other people. Why do you want to do this? Because it might be overly fixated on a restrictive notion of, the identity of yourself or the identity of yourself in relationship. And by, you know, loosening up that fixation, um, I think it frees, it frees you up to improve, right. To, to, to refactor. Um, I just have one last, like even mini prompt. Um, so we talked a little bit in our, our little group chat about, um, uh, 
doomer and optimism being these two poles. So I'm wondering if you guys have some thoughts. I think for a lot of people, like they're stuck in this, they can feel stuck in this doom place. Um, so specific, and, and for other people, maybe they don't even look at the doom and they just go like straight to whatever Mars or whatever that will place <laughs> that's like optimistic in their head. Um, so I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about this meme specifically, um, you know, the tension between these two poles. Make Gabe go first. I have some ideas. Okay. I think that um, I, I think it's a I think it's a fruitful paradox. Uh, I think it's really it's a useful thing. I I'm I'm recalling a line from John Michael Greer's book. I think it was Dark Age America, and he talks about how when empires decline, things actually get better for lower class people um, in a lot of ways. Uh, because wealth starts to redistribute and, you know, and that may not be the same, obviously, in, in this day and age, because there's a um, much less of a of a connection to the land and much less of, you know, uh, skills to to take care of yourself. But um, but I do I do think there are I, do, I don't I think there are reasons to be optimistic, despite uh, despite all of the despite having accepted that we're in this um this crash course with disaster that's, you know, uh, it's kind of slow motion train wreck that we're in. Um, I, um, contrasting, contrasting the two of these, the, to me, the synthesis of these two is one you all have already arrived at, which is, which is effectiveness, which is saying, okay, like this is happening, right? And, uh, Oh, it's it's making me it's making me think of it's making me think of a children's cartoon. It's, it's uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender. You guys know this cartoon? Yeah. All right, I watched this with my son. It was, it was a show on Nickelodeon a couple 10, 15 years ago. And there's this character, Uncle Iroh, who's this like kind of old sage guy. And and at one point he gets put in prison. And the whole time he's in prison, he acts crazy whenever the prison guard is around. And whenever the prison guard leaves, he just works out and just gets jacked. And then the minute there's an opportunity to escape, he's ready. And I kind of, I, I think the Uncle Iroh principle that's really important is like, just because an opportunity has not yet presented itself for us to possibly fix some some aspect of the meta crisis like just because we can't see it doesn't mean that it's not coming or doesn't mean that you know it's but but if it presents itself we better be prepared mm -hmm. uh and and even more than that by preparing and becoming stronger that itself affects your ability to see opportunities so it's in a way right those opportunities may not come until you get stronger like until you become more effective um, and so I would say that's the optimism part. It's like, yeah, it all looks like doom and gloom right now, but maybe that's because we need to work out. You know, we need to improve our, our improve ourselves. There you go. We need to be more, or we need to be more effective. We need to learn skills. And, um, we need to learn how to do, do more with less and, um, you know, repair our relationship to our communities, repair our relationships to the land in as much as we can, learn how to actually take care of ourselves 
in ways that we used to receive care from community and ways that we used to receive care from, from developmental environments that no longer hold for us any, any longer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of fruitful work in that, in that, in that paradox. Yeah. I have more to say, but it's off. It's a little bit off on a tangent and I want to give Booty a chance to talk. So. Well, I love what you say about paradox. And uh, I think, you know, I really value that too. Kind of in, in everything. I feel like I often avoid talking about what like capital T truth, or I, I think I still have some skepticism around that because of uh, how subjective it all is. And I'm also not a pure relativist, but, um, but I, I feel that when, when we get into like paradox, it, we're starting to get closer to something that's probably truth. Um, um, because it's so big and immense and whole that, that like we can't hold it all at once. And so it feels like paradox. So I think there's a really important tension in paradoxes and um, that, um, it, and, and that's like a deeply that, like holding the importance of paradox is a deeply sort of spiritual practice for me. Um, and so, so I, I really like the tension in the term doomer optimism. And I think it's really um, catchy. You came up with it, right, Jason? Ashley coined the term. Yeah, yeah. That's it was like us. It was us, like in conversation with one another. But I was uh, he he used the words separate, and I put them together. Right on. That's how the best things arise in community like that, right? Like it's um, I like in my um, in my marriage, like we often argue about who came up with what term or whatever, which. Uh, <laughs> Say again. I love that you that you have your own terms. Yeah, no, we have a lot of our own terms, and like well, I'm often like, "Oh yeah, the thing I came up with," and he'll be like, "Babe, I came up with that." I'm like, "Oh, you did? No, I did." And really, the truth of it is, as a lot of it came up in generative conversation, um, and I think that like that we are all generally better that way in like sharing and seeing what arises, what arises emergently. Um, and so, but I'm kind of getting far, maybe a little bit afield. Yeah. I really think there's something in like preparing for the worst and not being so optimistic. We ignore signs that things are changing and like trust that we'll be taken care of somehow without taking it upon ourselves to do that. I think and, but to not get like lost in the crushingness of it and give up and like kind of give into depression or gloom or cruelty or numbness. Um, I think like, like it is a practice to hold that balance and, and to, and to, we have a responsibility to um, flex our ability to respond, which is how I would kind of say like what you were saying, Gabe. All right. So I, I'm glad I, you said. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Get game. Oh, I was going to say, I'm glad. I'm really glad you said that. That's related to, to where I wanted to take it. Um, yeah, I want to hear which, this tangent. Which is, uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, it's that it's it's related to what Jason said. It's related to what Booty said. The, uh, something that's really important. It's something that paradox shows us is that what we think about something is not what it is. Uh, right. The finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. Like like what your attitude towards something determines how you relate to it, but it doesn't say it's it's not the thing itself. And so uh, when when if you can learn to uh, if you can learn to name your doomer thoughts whenever they come up, ah, there's the doomer, right? And you can learn to pair that every time with like when the doomer comes up, what's the first thing? What's the first thing you do? Because for a long time, I reached for my phone because I was like, how I'm gonna, ugh, just like, ugh. you know, like <laughs> that's how I'm gonna make myself feel better about the fact that everything's going to shit. Uh, but if you can learn to see the red, the category of thoughts that, or whatever the the piece of you inside of you that that is focused on the doom, and whenever that comes up, and you can learn to use that energy, you can train yourself, little butterscotch candies or whatever works. Every time the doomer comes up, how do I go get productive with that anxiety? How do I? How do I? You know, it's like ah oh, shit, like I'm worried about things, you know, going to hell. Well, uh you know, instead of freaking out about it, I'm going to, I'm going to send a, a message out to the group chat and I'm going to say, who wants to like come over for dinner and we're going to learn tying some new knots. Like, <laughs> like you're, we're going to need knots if shit goes to, you know, if things go to shit, like this, you need to know how to do that. It's an important skill, right? So whatever it is, right. It's like, if, if you, if you can, if you can channel that anxiety into First, if you can name it, and then if you can learn how to channel it, um, I think that you can shrink it, right? And you can actually see the doom much more clearly, but you can see it standing up with shoulders back, and you can look it right in the eye, you know? And I, I it's like, it's coming. It's not a question of whether it's coming, right? The question is whether it's like, how are you going to meet it? And I, I think that's that's the key. And I think that's, um, that's what I would tell anyone who's kind of suffering under a blanket of doom right now is like, um, start channeling it into whatever, whatever way you can and start, start small and, and, and be okay with it going slow. Can I, add, can I add something to that? Um, I'm curious. If you're yeah, thinking. of course. Um, channel it, but don't escape it. Right. So the feelings of doom, is closely related to the fear of death. And we have to come to terms with yes. death. And so there's kind of a, almost like a pivot where you, you come to terms with your own death, right? Uh, it frees you up from being reactive away from it, but it's still there. And then you can respond to it by channeling it. And I, I, if you agree with that, then, then I, I assume- I 100% agree with that. Yeah, that's wonderful, yeah. I love the cognitive behavioral aspect, Gabe. That's so cool. The butterscotch, <laughs> like whatever it is, like just forcing yourself into new habits. That's like, it is, that's so cool. I love that so much. And it's so practical, which I love too. Um, just, just important to be careful with it because you, you, you can hack yourself into things that are false. You can hack yourself into things that, that are ego driven or that are not good for you. And you can really get lost. Uh, and so it's, it's a, it's a technology. I mean, that's, that's just, you, you just want to exercise great caution and make sure it's always coming from a place of love and like 
oh, I like I want to build habits that are leading me to a to a uh, a self that is that has a greater truth value than than my current self, right? Like I can live in more truth. I can accept more truth. When you're using behavioral modification to get yourself toward that, then it's a wonderful tool. And if you're using it to to run away from something, it, you can really cause some problems. So just just a <laughs> important just some, just a caveat I want. Yeah, caveat I want to put out there. Awesome. This is so great. I'm we're we're um probably all itching to go um become embodied again. So um I'll just like wrap this up here. Any last thoughts from anybody before we um finish? This was so good, insanely good. I'm so happy with this conversation. Um final thoughts. I just want to say I, I feel really grateful to you. Thank you. That's it. I love having you guys on. You, both of you are, are two of my favorite accounts. And so it's delightful to have you here. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, so. no, th thank you for having us. It's been so fun. And I think, I think my final thought is something like the, I don't know, the dynamic tension between any poles is like relationship. And then like in the real world, world then that looks like making, like growing your community. And I'm really grateful to be doing that with you all right now. Oh, that's so good. That's such a great place to end it. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've got to pee again because I've just been drinking mate constantly. So um, I'm, I'm I thought that was mate. Yeah. I'm let, let you guys go. But this is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Bye, Happy guys. all so much. Happy